Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Please remain standing while we read the Word of God. In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, we will look at 9 through 27, but for the beginning, we'll just look at 9 through 11. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. This is the word of God, of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. This is holy and true, and it is given for our edification. I pray, Father, that you would give our hearts and our minds attention to your word. Let us hear it and let us live by it. Let it be our north star. Father, I pray as I preach that you would guide me to speak and to emphasize those things that you want made clear. And Father, I pray that you would protect my speech from error and confusion. Purify it in the hearing and in the preaching. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are again in our third Sunday of Advent. And that means we're getting closer and closer to Christmas Day and more and more aware of what we do or do not have done and how much more seems to be packed into those last 10 days. And so I think it's a good question to start uh, this message. What is the center of your Christmas? Not, Not the answer in Sunday school. But as you take a look at your, at your ledger, as you take a look at your finances, as you take a look at your calendar, what's the center of your Christmas? Broaden that out a bit. What's the center of your life? Where is it, where is it gravity? What is everything spinning around? What is everything emanating out from? Even, even when we are, are desirous and, and uh, driven to try and be God-centered and to make sure that our, our Christmases are centered on Christ, we, we have to recognize that living in the world is a constant tug and pull to keep the center somewhere else or to place the center somewhere else. We, we have 
a, a world that wants to stuff us so full of, of traditions and experiences and can't-miss moments and all of the Christmas songs we need to listen to at least once uh, and, and other things, uh, light displays and, and parties, that it can be easy just to find yourself in the party but not in the center of Christmas. That's the way that, that, that Satan is working to, to keep the kingdom of Christ from, from having its full sway in this world just by distraction, just by, by being dissipated with other good things. And so this message today is to, to help remind us and recenter us on what Christmas is all about. We have in the, the, the scripture today the, the picture of, of heaven. And the picture of heaven is given to us to, to kind of control the present, to, to set the vision for how we look and what we do today. And as we look at this picture of heaven given to us from Scripture, we might come to the awareness that when we think of our own pictures of heaven, they're not like the one given to us in Scripture. We, we have in our, in our pictures of heaven, we have those reunions, we have those relaxations, we have those uh, great uh, joyous experiences, we have the word paradise filled in with all sorts of, uh, of moments of, of joy. But you can listen to a lot of people talk about their dreams of heaven, their hope of heaven, and never mention the word God. You see, if the, the vision of heaven isn't centered in God, it is not the scriptural vision of God. And so this text today is to help us place God at the center, not just of Christmas, but of our lives and of our hope. Our series that we have been in is, is uh, called All Things New, and it's, it's reminding us that there's not just one Advent that each uh, Christian remembers or, or put, pays attention to at Christmas, but two. The first Advent is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies of God's Son coming into the world through Jesus, who was born in a manger and lived amongst us. But that's not the end of the story. That's just the promise that the story is going to end, and it's going to end a certain way. You see, we are living, waiting for the second coming of Christ. We are waiting for the second advent where he comes to make all things new. This series is also a, a complement to where we have been all year long in the, in the preaching. We started the first of the year with Genesis 1 through 3 with a picture of Eden, with a picture of God's very good creation. And as we have gone through the year, we have seen creation and then the fall, and then we saw through the book of Colossians, uh, God's work of recreation, of redemption through the sending of his son. And here we come to the climax, to the finish of God's great plan, the new creation. Today we look down and we're going to see in this, in this uh, scripture the, the portrait of the new Eden. We have gone from the, the Eden that we lost and then we go to the new heavens and the new earth. Just to remind you, last week we, uh, we, we focused on this theme, that Christmas proclaims that the one who makes all things new has come. And we saw all the, the ways that, 
that uh, Christ makes all things new, just to remind you of the, 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 the things that we saw, the, the five glimpses of the new heavens and the new earth, we saw that everything will be completely new, that it will shine with the beauty of holiness, that we will enjoy the infinite fullness and pleasure of God, that we will be perfectly whole and eternally comforted, and that we will be home. But because it is so important for uh, God to make, make us understand what is the main picture of heaven that we spend this next uh, message zooming in on one of those details from last week, which is the God-centeredness of heaven, the God-centeredness of the new heavens and the new earth. In our text today, we are going to see that the new heavens and the new earth will be like a new Eden. And so the main point for this morning is that Christmas proclaims that the one who brings a better Eden, the city of God, has come. And as we look at this passage, we're going to be like challenged by all of the descriptors and, and all of, of what is laid in front of us. It is beyond our ability to comprehend. I like what the commentator Robert Mounts says of this passage. He says, the city is magnificent beyond description. As the eternal dwelling place of God and his people, it is described in language that continually attempts to break free from its own limitations, which is just a way of saying it's even better than it's written. And it's written as, as well as it can be. So as we go through this text, as we look at this new, better Eden, what we are really going to see is, is not details of the city, but we're going to see why the city is the way it is. Because the city is made perfectly to exalt God, to make God the center. As Grant Osborne uh, said in his commentary, the city reflects the majesty and splendor of God himself. And so as we look at this picture, let us not look at heaven and forget it's all about God. The new heavens and the new earth are God-centered. In the city of God, we will enjoy God in his fullness. And we're going to look as we go through this text at, at five ways we're going to enjoy his fullness. But before we get into those five, I want you to have this question in your mind as we go forward. Is this the picture you're aiming for? Is this the picture that centers you? Is this your heaven? Let us now look at some of, of what we will experience in the new heavens and the new earth. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will enjoy the fullness of his love. We will enjoy the fullness of God's love. Now notice in verses 9 through 11 a, a couple things. First, we will see his love. His love will be always in front of us. And that is given to us in this word that repeats itself many times. It is, it is the preferred word to speak of Jesus in Revelation. And it's the word lamb. We are going to be the bride of the lamb. 
as it says in uh, verse, let's see, 11. Yes. Uh, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. The, the, the description, the presentation of Christ over and over again is that he is the lamb. He is the lion of Judah and also the lamb. This is uh, what we will see. This is how we will see Christ. He will be the lamb. And what does it mean when we hear the word lamb? Well, if we go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, Verse 29, we are told by John the Baptist, who is preparing the way for Jesus, that to to look at Jesus, because behold, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that is how we will see him and know him in the new heavens and the new earth. He will be present to us as the lamb who was slain. Meaning that in the heavens and the earth that is perfect, that is completely made new, that is beyond description, there will still be on our Savior the evidence, the marks of his sacrifice for you, in a world that will have no pain and suffering, where God wipes away the tears of every eye, there will be the Son with the marks of purchasing you for glory. You will always see that you have been engraved upon his hands because he loves you. The, the, the story that we, that we focus on at Christmas is that this Son of God came from heaven with no marks, with no wounds, with all glory. He came from heaven to be born as a child, to, to take on flesh, to be born and laid in a manger, to live life amongst us, and then to be hung upon a cross and to bear the marks of a crucifixion that even in his resurrection glorified body are never taken away. And so we will see the fullness of his love as the Apostle John writes in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. You see, the scriptures say that what love is, what the definition of love is, what the the fullness of love is, is that Jesus Christ laid down his life, that Jesus Christ is the lamb that was slain. And so every moment of our eternal existence in the new heavens and the new earth, we will have in front of us the fullness of his love demonstrated by the fact that he is the lamb that was slain. More, we will enjoy his love. We are called the bride of the lamb, the wife of the lamb, 
that, that is who we are. I mean, this takes us back to the picture of, of Eden. And we, we, we re- remember that in, in Eden, God had said, good, 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 good. And then there's a moment where he says, it is not good. And that moment was when he saw Adam without a mate. He said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And so he went and created Eve out of Adam's side. Here in the pictures of the new heavens of the new earth, of this new Eden, the city of God, we see Eden is exceeded because now the son receives the bride from the father, and the bride is us. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, these words, he says, all that we learned about in Genesis 2 was really a, a picture to be fulfilled at the end times. Paul says, quoting from Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What we are being told here is that we will experience the eternity of the fullness of God's love for us in the most intimate relationship that is known to us, that between a husband and wife. It is the pinnacle of the love relationship. We will experience the fullness of his love that that is pure. There will be no shame. There will be no fear. Those things are gone. We will simply receive the pure love of our Savior. It will be undying. There will never be a divorce. There will never be a torn asunder. It will be permanent. Nothing will will separate us from what God has put together. It will be joyful. When Eve was presented to Adam, he broke out in song. We are told that, that, that God will sing over us as his bride. It will be filled with joy. This is the center of, of, of the picture of heaven. It will be centered in the, the groom whose fullness of his love is, is given to his bride. So as we wait for this Advent, let me ask you, are you rejoicing in this gospel today? Is this marriage, is this moment where where you will be fully loved and and known in a way that that is, is beyond our human experience now, what centers you? We will be so filled with God's love that we will shine like a brilliant diamond. But second, we will enjoy the fullness of his faithfulness. Let's go back and and read verses 12 to 14. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles 
of the Lamb. We will enjoy the fullness of his faithfulness in this new Eden. The first Eden was created with the power of God's word. This new Eden is created by the faithfulness of God's word. What do I mean by that? We, we lost Eden. We, we sinned. We fell under the, 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 the rule of Satan by following his rules as opposed to God's rules. But even in the fall, even in the discovery that we no longer belong in Eden, God promised us that he would send a child of the woman who would eventually do battle with the, the offspring of the evil one that his heel would be bruised, but the evil one's head would be crushed. In the, in the Eden, in the, in the moment that we are leaving, we are given this promise that someday God will send a Savior, someone that will bring us back to Eden. And we have spent some time this year following that message, but the next time we see it explicitly is in uh, Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abraham, or Abram at the time, and he says to Abram, who will, have, uh, who will be in the line of the offspring, he says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see God's plan to bring a renewal to all the families of the world through this offspring to continue. And that goes through the nation of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel. And then it comes to Joseph and Mary, who are part of the tribe of Judah, where we are told in Matthew chapter 121, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So we see this promise that, goes, that is carried through the old covenant, carried through the 12 tribes of Israel, being brought to a fulfillment through the birth of Jesus to Joseph and Mary. And when Jesus fulfills his, his uh, mission of laying down his life to save his people from their sins and is risen again, he stands before the 12 apostles who he called and he says these words to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And from there, this promise that started in the garden, went to Abraham, went to Joseph and Mary, and then to the 12 apostles, has spread out to the whole world to be told that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? When we look at this passage in Revelation, we are told that this city is built with 12 gates that represent the tribes of Israel and 12 foundations that represent the apostles of the Lamb. What we are told is that that promise that God made and carries through the Scriptures has been kept faithful because the city of God is built on the keeping of those promises. And that promise is the reason that anyone is entered into the kingdom of heaven. 
the story here in, in, in Revelation 21 shows us that it's, it's one story. The story that God is telling us through the Old Testament is the story that he continues in the New Testament. The gates and the foundations show that God's people belong to one city because they are one people and they are saved by one word. The city displays his faithfulness. He has kept that promise to every single person who has responded to it. And it's a huge city. We'll talk about its dimensions in just a moment, but this is a huge city. And the size of this city partly displays how amazing the faithfulness of God's word has been. It's a huge city packed with the redeemed. All those who have responded and received the gospel, as we are told in Revelation chapter 7 and 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We all look forward to the reunions in heaven, to, to seeing those who have passed before us who were in the gospel, to, to seeing all these other people from generations past who have held the torch of the gospel. We, we look forward to that. That's one of the sparkliest parts of our picture of heaven but let us not lose sight of what those reunions are there to truly exalt. They are there to exalt the abundant mercy and unfailing faithfulness of God who made the promise, I will save you from your sins in my son, Jesus. The city of God is a testament to the trustworthiness and faithfulness of the word of God. It builds the city of God. And it is the only thing that lasts. I remind you of what Peter said in his first epistle, chapter 1, 24 and 25. He says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. As we look at a city that is, is, is made to exalt the faithfulness of God, as we call that our hope, as we call that the place that we want to be, the question as we wait for that second advent is, Today, are we basing our life, are we living our life, are we trusting in the only thing that never fails, the Word of God? Is that our foundation? Beloved, trust in the Word. It is the only thing that will last. Now as we continue... So we continue looking at these pictures of the city of God where we will enjoy the, uh, 
enjoy God in his fullness, let us see third that we will also enjoy the fullness of his holiness. As we're told in verses 15 and 16, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measure, which is also an angel's measurement. So we have this description now of the, the shape of this city. It is humongous. 12,000 stadia converts to basically 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles. I did a little uh, investigating how far you would have to drive, where you could get to before you hit 1,500 miles. You can go from Baton Rouge to Winnipeg, Canada. So that's the entire north-south plus some of the United States. And that is its dimension in its width and in its length. It is, it is a big square. It's more than a square. That is also its dimension vertically. That's its height, width, and depth, which equates to more than 3 billion cubic miles of space. Now, again, I don't know whether this, these dimensions are to be taken exactly literally or if they are of a symbolic nature, but they are um, meant to impose that it is a humongous city of God. And it's a very strange shape. It's not perhaps the shape that we would picture uh, as, a, as a great architectural achievement. It is described as a cube, height, width, and depth being equal. And that is significant for us to understand what is the real purpose of this description. Because there's only one other place in Scripture where something is described as a perfect cube. And that is the Holy of Holies in the temple and in the tabernacle. Height, width, and depth are equal. And so what is being said here in this great picture is that the, the city of God is going to be the place that displays God's perfect holiness. God's holiness will be completely present everywhere. The Holy of Holies in the, in the Old Testament was, was the place where Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 was of, of the, the great throne room where the seraphim who are made of fire, perfectly fitted to be in the presence of God, sing back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty because the holiness of God is so heavy and so immense and so permeating that all they can do is sing to the superlative, superlative, this is who God is. And that full presence of God dwells in the new Eden with no diminishment, with no mitigation. It is full. Now here's something we have to remember. The Holy of Holies was a place that no one was allowed to go. Except one time a year, the high priest, after following a very careful prescription, was allowed to enter to present a sacrifice. 
But apart from that, no one was allowed to be part of or enter into the Holy of Holies. It was covered with a thick curtain. And that thick curtain was to remind us of the the great fall. It was unsafe to be in the presence of a holy God because a holy God in the presence of sin is a consuming fire. And so this picture of the cube and the the, the city of God is a reminder of, of where we must go if we are going to have true bliss with God. When we were expelled from Eden because of our sin, God placed at the boundary of Eden a cherubim, some sort of spiritual angelic figure with a sword meant to bar us from ever coming back to Eden because we were unholy. Uh, unfit for his presence. And we see as we, we go forward in the story that the cherubim are part of the design that is sewn into this curtain that stands in front of the tabernacle and the temple. So the cherubim continually remind us that there is a keep out sign to God's holiness and our sin will never allow us to enter. It is the reason why the scripture tells us again and again, no one has been able to see God and live. Because if anyone in their sinful state were to to see God as he is, they would be destroyed. This is the chief problem of scripture. How can a sinful people ever find peace in the presence of a holy God? And so this this temple, this, this structure of the holy of holies, stands in front of us. And the only way that we can look at being part of the holy of holies in the, in, God's perfect, uh, in the presence of God's perfect holiness is because this entire city is opened by the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus Christ lived and fulfilled the perfect life, never sinning, always obeying God, when he died on the cross to pay for our sins, the last thing that happened before he left his body was the news that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, meaning that in the giving of Christ's life, this wall of separation that kept us from the presence of a holy God that meant that we were always going to be outside the camp was in the death of Christ completely torn asunder. That all who come to Christ come forgiven, come made holy, come fit to be in the presence of a holy God. And so as we look at the new heavens and the new earth, we recognize that we are there because the way has been opened by Christ alone. Because of Christ's coming, we will dwell with God, not afraid, but rejoicing as the seraphim rejoice in his holy presence. Think of these words from the Apostle John in chapter 3, verse 2 of his first epistle. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him 
purifies himself as he is pure. This is the great vision to be in the presence of a holy God without fear, to enjoy him as he is. Is this part of your vision? To see him as he is. Are you making yourself pure as he is pure? That is, that is what John understood was the case. If you, if you were born of God, if you were born of the gospel, then your pursuit now is for holiness, is for purity, is for increasing likeness to God and his standard of righteousness. So if you are centered on God and your vision of heaven is centered on God, then today is there a pursuit of holiness in you? Next, we will see that that this city of God, that we will enjoy the the, the fullness of, of God in, we will next enjoy the fullness of his glory. Fourth, we will enjoy the fullness of his glory. Let us continue, verses 17 to 21. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Gold streets, splendid jewels, giant pearls. Again, this is where the, the language is, is, is straining to try and describe it. I don't know if this is literally what it's going to look like. I think the point is it's going to be amazing in its appearance. It is going to be rich and ornate. Why? Why all this attention to to gold and jewels and pearls? Because the city is made to radiate and reflect the glory of God. This is its purpose. This is why it exists. Everywhere are fractals. Everywhere is diamond fire. Everywhere is brilliance and splendor. Because everything is created to take the glory of God which shines upon it and shine it back and shine it in every direction. The the city of God lives to reflect the glory of God. Do we today live to reflect the glory of God? Are we preparing and waiting for the second coming? Then prepare and wait by living for the glory of God. What what does that mean? Glory is, is a fancy word for wait. When, it, when, when we live for the glory of God, it means that God at all times, in all ways, in all circumstances, gets the weight of our life. 
We don't choose light and flimsy things. We are people of, of, of consequence, of weight, because we are filled with what is weighty, that is God's presence. You see, the new heavens and the new earth is made to reflect its king. And that is why number five, in this new Eden, we will enjoy the fullness of his lordship. And we enjoy the fullness of his lordship. Let us finish the chapter, 22 to 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there shall be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations." But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the climax of this chapter. This is the climax of this vision. The best thing is that God is fully there. Everything that we have looked at in this passage is preface. It's preparing. Something big is coming. Something wonderful is coming. Why do we need to lay out all the good china? Because somebody's about to visit that is amazing. And that is what the chapter ends with. It leads us up building the perfect place to reflect the fullness of God because God's there. God's presence is fully in Eden, the new heavens, the city of God, the treasure of heaven is God. The city of of God is for God and displays God. It is the full realization of the kingdom of God. This is the place where God is reigning unmitigated without any any, uh, confusion. When the the scripture talks about there being no dark and the gates are never closed, he he is saying that this will be the place of perfect safety and perfect security because darkness and gates were part of protecting, were areas that needed protection. When he talks about the kings of the nations, the emphasis there is that the whole world serves him and lives for his glory. Those nations are, I believe, most easily understood as all the different tribes and peoples that have been redeemed by Christ. They have been sanctified. Not every part of their identity is, is you know, their culture or whatever is taken away, but it it is made to glorify God. And so everyone who lives in the new heavens and the new earth, their work is to bring to God glory. That is their commerce. This is the picture of the, of the Lord's prayer fulfilled. We pray every Sunday, thy, uh, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is as it is in heaven, finally and fully 
fulfilled. As we come to the end of, of the 21st chapter, we, we look back and we remember that with the fall, Satan took the world from Eden and took the world from God's direct rule. But the end, as we look in this chapter, will witness to the fullness of his lordship. Eden will be exceeded in every way as Satan is fallen. So when we conclude, in the city of God, we will enjoy God in his fullness. We will enjoy the fullness of his love. We will enjoy the fullness of his faithfulness. We will enjoy the fullness of his holiness, the fullness of his glory, and the fullness of his lordship. How can we know? How can we know that we will enjoy the fullness because we already know these words from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 are fulfilled. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and, the pe and peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establishment and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That child has been given to us. Christmas proclaims that the one who brings a better Eden has come. Beloved, is your Christmas centered on Christ? Is your life centered upon God? Let us prepare and live for what we are waiting for. Amen? Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.